0: Paul was not a relatively good guy. He was a flaming train wreck. No matter what your background, no matter how much failure or difficulty that you've experienced, it doesn't matter. You are not beyond his reach. It's not primarily about saying you're sorry. It is primarily about changing your orientation to the world. And so we can encounter God every day. Dave, I'm one of the pastors here at Campus House, and I'm sharing with you today. And we're looking at Acts 9, which is some of what Ken recapped when we started. And it's this wild conversion story of Saul. Saul meeting Jesus. And we're going to look at that in a minute, but I felt like the Lord wanted us to personalize this a little bit and share about a radical transformation story that I got to participate in. Um, and so I'm going to tell a story that happened to me and then we're going to engage Acts 9 and, uh, we'll see where it goes together. So, um, Back in 2012, I was not a pastor. I worked for a software company, and uh, but I was pursuing Jesus, and I had was in the middle of conference season, so I was traveling all the time to set up trade shows, and uh, I just come back from like a weekend retreat, and I was getting ready to go to. It was either D.C. or Vegas. I don't remember. But I was leaving on Monday for that. And I had one night at home. Um, and I wanted to spend that one night at home uh, watching a movie with my wife and investing in my marriage and, you know, just relaxing from being gone. And I got a call from a friend. His name uh, is Raleigh Rocket. And uh, Raleigh called me up and said, hey, Dave, uh, We've got a situation. I've been studying at this coffee shop all semester and I've met this guy and uh, he's an older gentleman. He used to be homeless. He was getting his life together and he started drinking again and he is about to lose his apartment and he's getting evicted tomorrow and I am really worried that once he gets evicted, he's gonna be back on the street and we're gonna lose track of him. And he said, I just really feel like you might have something for him. Would you come with me over to his house and talk to him? And everything in me wanted to say no. And I said, well, let me think about it. Because what I really wanted to do was to sit at home and relax and spend time with my wife prior to uh, going on another trip. But I felt this gentle nudging the sense that this is in fact what God wanted me to do. So I grabbed my Bible and I went downtown to meet my friend Raleigh and this then nameless alcoholic who was about to be evicted from his house. And we get to his apartment and I'm walking up the stairs and it's outside stairs and he meets me on the stairs and, and he looks at me and catches my eye and he tears up and he says, thank you so much for coming. And I thought, huh, this is interesting. Maybe God's up to something here. And so we go in and it was a really heartbreaking scene. You could see this was a man who had been trying to get his life together and had been going to school and had like some nice dishes and decent linens in a house that had been like an apartment that had been cared for. But then you could tell in the last couple months it has just gone to trash. I mean, like his pans had food burned in them, his it was just just a total mess. You could tell it was just had fallen apart. And there are these people there who were like buying his furniture, super cheap, and they felt like vultures. And it was just a pretty disgusting scene all around. So I was standing there and I was like, okay, God, is there anything you want me to do here? And I look up and I saw a crucifix over his bed. And I said, "Uh, so Gary, there's a crucifix there. Does God mean something to you? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, can I just share a little bit? And I sat down and Even now, seven years later, I struggle with specific scripture references. I mean, I've given my life to this. I know the Bible pretty well. But, like, the actual numbers don't come that easily for me uh, still. And even more so then. But I sat down, and it was almost a miracle. I flipped, like, verse to verse to verse. I knew what verse it was, and my Bible was opening right to the right page. It was really unbelievable as I talked through the gospel with this man, And he starts crying and sharing just tragic circumstances in his life and declares that he really does want to get sober and get his life right. Um, But one of the really insidious things about alcoholism is that when you're really bad, and I didn't know this at the time, but when you are really bad and like a massive alcoholic, stopping drinking can actually kill you. Uh, You can get tremors, which... I think we know about that through pop culture, DTs and tremors, and you can shake. But those can go into convulsions and seizures and actually kill you. And so this man was in a situation where he wanted to um, stop drinking and repair his life, but was also afraid to and didn't have medication to come down on. And Jess and I were actually between churches at the time and had been saving our tithe Um, the money we were going to give away and what we normally gave the church and just putting it in an account. We weren't sure what we were going to do with that money. We weren't sure if we were going to... I almost, like a week before, almost wrote a check to another ministry and just like to push the money out, but didn't feel like that's what we were supposed to do. And so that night I called my wife and asked her if we could take all that money and check this guy into a detox program. And so we did. She said, Yes, sure, let's go save this man's life. And uh, we checked him in. And he was there for a couple of days. It was massively expensive, so it was only a couple of days. But they were able to chemically bring him down from uh, his alcoholism. And I met with him for the following month or two. I would pick him up every morning from the homeless shelter, and we'd eat breakfast and plan out his day and talk about the Bible and Jesus and help him get on track. And right about Thanksgiving time, he had a couple major setbacks and disappointments. He got sick, and his sister didn't invite him to Thanksgiving. And his son had a change of plan, so he was alone. And he slipped back into drinking and just hit a real hard downward spiral. And a few days after Thanksgiving, he had just totally gone off the map, and I was pretty frustrated because I'd put a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of energy, and now we, he had disappeared, and we think he was drinking again. And I just kind of asked the Lord, I was like, where is he? And I was driving around on my lunch break, and uh, uh, just kind of thought of the walking bridge between, like, by Reilly Plaza. So I drove down there, and it was almost like a movie. Like, as I walked onto the walking bridge, it was, like, framed. I see these two guys on the bridge. As I get closer, you see one of them finish off a handle of cheap vodka and chuck it into the Wabash. And uh, I said, hi, Gary, as he releases his bottle of vodka. And uh, he said, oh, hi. And I was I was pretty angry. And I said, man, you said you wanted to get your life right. You said you wanted to get baptized. You said you wanted to give your life to Jesus. Like, and here you are drinking again. I said, I really think your life is in critical danger. Um, and, you know, I'm willing to baptize you tonight if you don't drink between now and tonight. But if you keep drinking, I want you to call your son and tell him that you love him. And um, this is probably it for you. So I waited in anticipation for the call that night to see what would happen. And the call didn't come. And then for two more days, radio silence. And it was really challenging. And I really was was upset with the Lord, even. And I was like, man, like, everything is right here. Like, time and money and spiritual resources. Like, everything is right here. It's so close. And like, ah, he just turns his back and walks away. I felt like the Lord said, I, I feel that way a lot. You know, I, I paid the price. Everything is right there. And people just can turn and refuse. And I felt like the Lord revealed part of his heart to me that day. But three days later, I got a call. I was at work. uh, And on my line, he said, hey, I'm at this bus station. Can you pick me up and take me to the hospital? And so I drive to the address he gave me. And uh, my friend is sitting there looking really terrible at this, like, bus shelter um, that's literally in the parking lot of a hospital. And so I said, Gary, why did I take off of work to take you to the hospital when you could walk across a parking lot? And he said, well, to tell you the truth, I was sitting here in this bus shelter and I was debating whether I was going to go check myself into the hospital or if I was going to step out in front of a truck and kill myself. And as I was contemplating that reality, I felt the Lord say, call Dave. And so I called you. And uh, still to this day, that is one of the highest privileges of my life, that in this man's moment of decision on life or death, I still can't believe the Lord's advice was to call me. But that's what he said. And so said, well, I took off of work, so I guess let me at least drive you to the hospital on the other side of town um, since we're in this. And so I started driving him and asked him what he'd been up to, and he shared, over the course of the last three days since I last saw him, he... Um, was living in the garage of a habitat for Humanity house that was being built kind of like hold up like a mouse in the insulation he was walking across the street to a village pantry and using his uh card his food stamp card to buy um, a sandwich stealing a six pack of steel reserve throwing the sandwich away drinking until he passed out would wake up and do it again for three solid days just that spiral, spiral of drinking, essentially trying to kill himself um, on malt liquor. And so I said, well, you haven't eaten anything for three days. Maybe we should get you some soup or something before you go to the hospital. And so we decide to go to McAllister's Deli over on Creasy. And uh, we pull in and he says, Dave, I am scared. I said, I feel like a darkness on me. I still feel like I might kill myself. I just feel like there's no hope and I just feel cold. I said, Well, let's pray before we go in. And so he's in my car. I put my hand on him and I start praying for him. And I don't really remember what I said, but as I started praying for him, uh, he lets out this shh for like 45 seconds, like a kettle letting off steam um, as I prayed for him. It was really intense. And we got out of the car. And uh, walked in and he said, Dave, I feel like I can see again. He's like looking up at McAllister and there's like pictures that are high up. He feels like I felt like before this, there was just like covered in darkness and I could only look at myself and it felt like I was being crushed, but I can, I can look up. I feel like there's light and hope. And as we talked over soup, he decided, I was like, well, we can check you into the hospital to do the chemical come down thing again, or there's a couple programs that I know of that can really partner with people like you for life transformation. And so we decided to check him into the nights Inn and take him and think about and pray through what the right program would be for him and take him the next day to one of those programs. Um... He asked me to stay with him that night because he was f- afraid that he was going to die uh, with tremors and uh, seizures. And I don't know about you, but the thought of staying with a man who had been homeless and drinking nonstop for three days was not appealing. And uh, he did not smell particularly good at that point in time. Uh, but I felt like the Lord said, yep, that's what you need to do. And so stayed with. I prayed for him that night. Just asked the Lord that he would remove the claws of alcoholism that would seek to kill him uh, as he came down and that he would protect my life. And uh, we got in the car the next day, and I drove him up to a program in Michigan, in Holland, Michigan. He stayed there for a little over a year. As I was checking him in, um, he was filling out the application, and I basically told this story to the director of the program. He said, well, this is a miracle. He said, anyone drinking that hard should not be able to fill out their paperwork. They should be shaking that hard. Like, he had no seizures that night or anything. He was sober and uh, has remained sober since then. And that's seven years ago. He's graduated college. He's working in town and uh, is doing great. And so it's this amazing story of transformation that I got to participate in. And it is somewhat... There's resonances to the stories that we're going to look at today in Acts 9, and I'm going to try to draw those out. So Acts 9, meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light fell from heaven and flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked him, he asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this very moment, he's praying and he's seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and that he's here with authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. He's basically like saying, seriously, Lord, this guy? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and he entered the house and he laid hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. And then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed, saying, Isn't this the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And, he has not come, and has he not come here for the purpose of binding them and bringing them before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him at the gates. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was actually a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up, living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So we have this amazing story of a man who was sent or went on a mission to persecute the church, to bind Christians, to throw them in jail. Attempting to destroy the church. He is met powerfully by God. He encounters God and his whole life is turned upside down. And rather than persecuting the church, he becomes the preeminent church builder that the world has known. He wrote most of the New Testament. And instead of persecuting people for their faith, he begins to be persecuted for his, his new faith in Jesus. And so what do we learn from Paul's story? I think there are two really important things. First of all, is that no one, no one is too far for God's reach. Not someone who is actively persecuted and seeking to destroy the church. They are not too far from God's reach. It is not a matter of our performance It is a matter of Christ's performance. Paul was not a relatively good guy who was most of the way there and had a few mistakes that Jesus needed to cover for him. He was a flaming train wreck who was actively trying to destroy God's work and God reached in and saved him. And so no one... No matter what your background, no matter how much failure or difficulty that you've experienced, no matter how many times you feel like you have failed God and are unable to walk out life with him, it doesn't matter. You are not beyond his reach. He can take someone actively working against God's purposes and bring him in to full forgiveness, full repentance, and make him a tool of church growth and expansion. It's not about our performance. It's about God's grace and his love and his ability to forgive and make new. The second thing that I want to draw out for us is a pattern that is the same for both Paul and Ananias. Both of them had an encounter and they believed and repented. And then we see the action of that repentance lived out. Which I think is a pattern for all of us in our life with Jesus as well. Paul encounters Jesus on the road, like actually Jesus, which is pretty great. His belief changes. He believed prior to that encounter that Jesus was a charlatan and the church was destroying Judaism. In that moment of encounter, everything changed. He believed Jesus and repented. Repentance does not mean he said he was sorry. Repentance is not saying you're sorry. Repentance, the Greek word metanoia, means to turn around or to change your mind. It's not primarily about saying you're sorry. It is primarily about changing your orientation to the world, changing your mindset, changing your beliefs, changing your actions. Repentance is the act of turning. And in this moment, we see Paul encountering Jesus, believing him, and repenting. So turning from being a persecutor of the church to a promoter of the church direct opposite, 180 degree turn, even heading in the same direction, but with the exact opposite mission that he started in. Confession isn't even really saying, I'm sorry. Confession is acknowledging the reality. So Paul confessed, he acknowledged the reality that he was wrong, And he repented, which means he changed his outlook and orientation on life to begin promoting Jesus rather than persecuting him. And that repentance leads to action. He's baptized, and he begins to proclaim Jesus to the Jews, even to the point of his own persecution where people looked to kill him. So Paul encountered Jesus, he believed him, he repented, which was turning around, which led to action in the outgrowth of that repentance. Because faith and relationship with Jesus also isn't primarily for ourselves. Paul's faith wasn't primarily for himself. It wasn't a belief, an encounter with Jesus, a belief, oh, yeah, that's right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. He didn't head back to Jerusalem and maintain his existing life. His repentance was actually for life for the world around him as well. So it leads to action that flows out. Ananias, we have something really similar. Ananias was a good Christian. He was not uh, persecuting the church. But the pattern is the same for Ananias. And I just love this about the Bible that like three or four chapters ago, uh, a dude named Ananias like died for his unfaithfulness. And then here's another dude named Ananias who's being super faithful. But it's just like, man, if it was made up, this wouldn't be the right name to pick. But that's okay. Uh, So there's this dude, Ananias, who's a good Christian and he's there and is praying and he sees a vision of the Lord and he says Ananias and he answered well here I am and then the Lord so he has an encounter with the Lord and the Lord tells him to go to some house on some street and pray for this dude that's been persecuting the church and Ananias has trouble believing I mean he pushes back and says really Lord him this this guy like he is bad news and the Lord says yes this guy And so he believed the Lord, and he repented. He turned from trying to avoid Saul. He knew that he was coming. He knew that he was coming with authority from the chief priests to persecute Christians and tie them up. His belief was, I need to avoid this guy at all costs. But he encountered the Lord, his belief changed, and he repented. He turned around because the Lord asked him to go pray for him. And so instead of trying to avoid Saul, he turned around and went, and prayed for him. So he encountered the Lord. He believed the Lord. He repented, which led to outward action, which was him going, praying for Saul to be healed and receive the Holy Spirit. He baptizes him, and uh, he obeys the Lord and gets the lead, the freaking apostle Paul, to Jesus, which is exciting. So I think for us, the pattern is the same. That we encounter God, and I think maybe massive angelic visions and being blinded on the road aren't your norm for encounter with the Lord, although that's totally open and can happen. But I think that we encounter the Lord on a regular daily basis in three ways. I think we encounter the Lord through Scripture, that we can hear the word of the Lord through Scripture, I think that we can hear it directly through interaction with God, through prayer, through circumstances, through nature, through dreams or visions like these guys encountered. We can hear the Lord directly, and we can hear the Lord through one another, through his people, that we can speak God's words into each other's lives. And so we can encounter God every day. And the call of a disciple is as when we encounter God, is to believe and repent, to trust and obey the Lord, and to walk out what he's asking us to do, to turn around. And so I think we can obey him, we can repent, turn around. Sometimes when we hear God's word, the response is just to worship. But the call for us is the same, that we encounter the Lord, we believe and repent, which always then leads to an outflowing of action. Because Jesus did not account his life as something, as equality with God as something to be exploited, but went to suffer death, even death on a cross. So God did not seek, and Jesus did not seek to save his own life, but gave it away. In the life of Christians, we see it with Paul and Ananias both. They encounter God, they believe, they repent, and it leads to life being given away, even at their own danger. So I want to encourage you guys in this. That it is, we can encounter God every day. We can believe, we can repent, and we can live this life out. And the last thing that I want to focus on is the last verse here in 31 that we read today. It says, meanwhile, the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up, living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. I think this concept is really important. We see the fear of the Lord demonstrated in both of these guys' lives, where they trusted God even above their own opinions, their own estimation, and their own vision of the circumstances. Fear of the Lord is trusting and obeying Him before even ourselves. And as they feared the Lord and obeyed him and stepped out in what they were calling him to do, the Holy Spirit backed them up. This is my story, too, that I did not want to go and meet with some almost homeless alcoholic that night. I really, more than anything, I wanted to hang out with my wife at home. But I feared the Lord more than I desired my own comfort and obeyed him, which led to this powerful experience of literally getting to participate in the saving of a man's life. And when we fear the Lord and step out in obedience with what he's asking us to do, we get the comfort of the Holy Spirit as well, that the Holy Spirit writes checks of power to back up the invitation that God asks. He bears the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, we saw, I saw a man literally set free from alcoholism and, and alive. Ananias saw a man healed of uh, blindness and filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul became one of the most effective church planners the world has ever known. As they feared the Lord and operated in obedience, the Holy Spirit brought the comfort and power necessary to carry out the invitation of Jesus. And as I was preparing for this, I felt like the Lord said, my people are too often not living in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, but living in the comfort of the Lord and the fear of the Holy Spirit. I felt like he said, we are living in the comfort of ideas about Jesus, but afraid of directly interacting with him. Taking his kindness as as liberty to not obey him. and trying to avoid direct interaction with him. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment, for when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he'll repay according to each one's deeds, To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. For there will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers who will be justified. So it's not that our works justify us. It is Jesus's grace. We saw that with Paul. It's not our works that justify us. It is God's grace freely given to us. But his grace and kindness is meant to bring us into a relationship with Jesus, not as him simply as our Savior, but him as our Lord and Savior. And if Jesus is our Lord, we are called to believe and repent, to obey and to follow him, to treat him as if he is the one who is in charge of our lives to put into action his teachings and promptings and leadings. And friends, as we do that, as we obey our Lord and Savior, as we walk in the life that he calls us to, we receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We receive the empowerment to carry out what he calls us to. Jesus is not just a historical figure who did something in the past. He is active and reigning. He's not a set of principles to be followed, but he is a person who is alive and reigning today. That his speech pours forth day and night, that he desperately loves us and is inviting us to participate in his plan of redemption of all things to allow us to be conduits of his life, to flow into the world, to be bearers of his light into a dark world. And so, Lord, I ask that you would bless each of us here today. First of all, if we are in that camp that thinks we are too far gone, that your grace could never reach us, that we're going to continually fail, Just want to relieve us and let us realize we're going to continue to fail apart from you. But thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. God, I ask that you would allow us to come into the saving relationship of your grace and love freely given. But God, I ask that you would also give us by your spirit the boldness and the confidence to obey you to believe you, to repent and to follow you so that life can spill out from this place. Life can be brought into each dorm room and classroom that your life and your love and your light can impact this campus and this world. That God, we would taste and see that you are good and that the world might taste and see that you are good.